Well, when Tim called me last night to ask if I'd do this little skit, one of the things he said is, you know, we're going to put this stuff in your backpack and pretend like it's heavy. I didn't have to do any pretending there. That was pretty heavy. A good, so maybe I felt it more than you guys, but, but a good illustration of some of the burdens that our missionaries bear. So thank you for that, that reminder and that lesson. So last week I, I did some counting in, sitting in my office. I, I counted how many weddings I've done since I've been here at Ivanrest. I'm up to 52. 52 weddings, and some of you have been a part of those weddings. And, and it's always fun to look at how, how they put the weddings together. Every wedding has its unique perspectives, its little, its little differences that are personalized to each couple. But there's one moment in every wedding that I have the best seat in the house to see and that just about everybody else misses. See, it happens when I'm standing down right about here and, and everybody's processed in already, right? Grandpa and grandma are sitting down there. Mom and dad are sitting down there and, and the, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen have all processed in. They're, they're all lined up here and all of you in the crowd are sitting facing the front. What you can't see because I'm one of the few people facing towards the back is when the bride and her dad come around that corner, they're walking in front of the windows and line up right straight down the aisle. And it's that moment when this guy here locks eyes with that girl down there and, and they realize, whoa, we're getting married. Whoa, we've been working all this time and the moment is here and he can't help but smile she can't help but beam, and dad can't help but cry, right? It is, it is a wonderful moment to be able to see, and all of you miss it because you're busy looking up front. The beauty of the bride prepared for the groom, and the groom ready for the bride. It's a beautiful moment, and it's that moment Exactly that moment that God uses to help us understand his relationship with us. His relationship with the church, with, with his people that he loves so dearly. Right? And that's where we're at in our journey through the Belgic Confession. Trying to understand what it means for us to be church. And we might as well start where God starts. Which is to say the church is the bride of Christ. The bride of Jesus. Now notice one Seemingly insignificant but very important point to make with that analogy that, that God uses. The bride of Christ. Notice there is only one bride. He doesn't say we are the brides of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. There's one bride. Not many. And that usually goes without saying, right? At a wedding, there is only one bride. Unless you're from a different minority culture around the world where they allow multiples. But... But when I do weddings, there is one bride. And if there's more than one, then I haven't done very well in my pre-marriage counseling. We got some work to do. There's one. And yet we get this often so wrong as the church, right? We have broken the church of God apart into all different pieces and parts. So many different denominations that have no contact, no connection, no relationship with each other at all. And so the picture we have is that there's these multiple brides of Christ waiting for him to come back instead of just one. We so often are a, a, a disunified and divided bride of Christ. 
Yet when talking about the church, the Belgian Confession starts us off by declaring this. It says, we believe and confess one single Catholic or universal church. A holy congregation and gathering of true Christian believers awaiting their entire salvation in Jesus Christ, being washed by his blood and sanctified and sealed by the Holy Spirit. We believe one universal church, one holy congregation, one bride. Okay, there's only one church with a capital C. It doesn't matter what denominational names on the outside of your building. It doesn't matter what your unique style or unique tradition is. It doesn't matter if your label is Christian Reformed or United Reformed or United Methodist or Baptist or non-denominational or Catholic. It doesn't matter where you stand on the issues like women in office or infant baptism or, or, or the rapture. What matters is that when it comes to being a part of the church with a capital C, what matters is that you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and he is the Lord of your life. That's what it takes to be a part of the church. And that means that the church is a lot more diverse than we probably wish it to be. It's a lot more diverse than what you and I are probably completely comfortable with. Think about that. We are members of the body of Christ with people that we disagree deeply with. We are members of the body of Christ with both liberals who desperately miss President Obama and conservatives who love President Trump. We're together as one. We are the body of Christ with people who are, who are gay and lesbian and straight. We are the body of Christ with the richest 1% in the nation and with the poorest of the street people. We are one in the body of Christ with people who love organ music and with people who only listen to rap and hip-hop. We're one. There's only one body of Christ, and it's so much more diverse than we probably want to realize. But that's exactly what Jesus intended. And that's exactly what Jesus died to make a reality. But take out your Bibles. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Right? We read verses 1 through 10 of this chapter last week. We're going to pick up at verse 11 this morning. Because here we are reminded that Jesus did not die for churches he died for the church. He died to bring us together as one. He died to bring unity out of our, our diversity. He died so that we would set aside what divides us, so we'd break down walls between us. Listen to what Paul writes, starting at verse 11. It says, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call them the circumcision which is done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. Hear that? One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Did you catch all the ones in there? We are one. Jesus died to make us one. It is the blood of Jesus Christ that binds us all together as one, that reconciles all our differences, that tears down the walls that divide us. The blood of Jesus Christ takes precedence over anything else that might divide us. Right, so here in this passage, Jesus forces us to lay aside our differences, to lay aside our debates, to lay aside our arguments for a moment, and to celebrate this oneness that we share in him. He is our peace. He is our unity. The community that God is building is so much bigger than just our church so much bigger than just our denomination. It's a worldwide community of people who have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And that truth is so hard for us to remember. That unity truth. It's hard because we let all of these other issues, these issues that we can't agree on, we always let those issues take center stage in our conversations. Those issues take center stage in our communities. We've drawn lines so hard and so fast between fellow Christians that we have virtually no relationship with them at all. Sometimes even within our own denomination. Sometimes within our own church community. And Jesus' heart hurts deeply when he sees us trapped in our divisions when he sees us stuck in this divisiveness when he sees us willingly segregating ourselves into isolated communities Jesus would love to have us learn to love each other more and more so that, so that when that moment comes and we gather together to be presented as one to be presented as the bride of Jesus Christ. Remember, one bride, we're coming to meet him 
at the end of time together. He would love to have us learn to love each other now so that when that time comes, we aren't surprised by who's standing next to us. We aren't shocked to have strangers standing there with us as the bride of Christ. And so as we do that, as we, as we learn to love each other in unity, we need to realize the immense value of this community called the church. Yes, this church that's broken, this church that's dysfunctional, and we are broken, we are dysfunctional, sin is in here, right? This church is still God's design. This church is not something, the church is not something that, that people made up. It's not a system and a structure that maybe in the first century when Christianity was growing, somebody said, we better figure out how to get organized. How about we invent the church? No. This is God's design. He has always set apart for himself a community of people. And his expectation has always been that this community of people set aside by him would bless this world, that he would bless the world, transform the world through them. Right, listen to what the confession says. It says, this church has existed from the beginning of the world and it will last until the end. As appears from the fact that Christ is eternal king who cannot be without subjects. This church is not a New Testament invention. The church, this community of faith, has always existed. It's taken different forms. It's looked different. But it's always been. There's always been a community of people who are committed to God and who love him. Even if it's one person in 0.004% in that community, there's the church committed to God. And this community that God has chosen as his own, he's also chosen to change this world through us. Think about this. Of all the ways that God could have chosen to bring his salvation message to the world, right? He sends his son Jesus, dies, rises again, makes a way for us to be made right with God forever and ever. God's got to get that message out to the world, right? Of all the ways he could have chosen to get that truth out to the people who desperately need to hear it, he chose the church. I could think of so many better ways. A few big miracles and everybody would see God, right? How about some, some writing in the clouds? God said, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. You, the church, you are how I am going to let this world know that I love them. You are how I am going to let this world know that I have died and risen again for them. You are how I am going to let this world know that they can experience joy and salvation and peace and contentment. You, the church, that's my plan A. And there is no plan B. Wow. You know, I've talked over the years with people who, who never want to be a part of the church. Different reasons. Some say, I'm just not a joiner. I don't join groups and people. Some say, the church is really just a man-made organization meant to control people. Some say that 
Now, they don't have any, any need to be a part of the community, right? Their faith is me and God. All I need is God, and all God needs is me, and I'm good. I don't need to mess with other people's faith. It's an individual thing. You know what? All of them, when they choose not to be a part, they're missing out on the honor and the calling from God to participate in the transformation that he's working. Yes, God loves each of us individually, but he loves this community called the church. That's what he said. He loves us gathered together. He loves us so much that he gave us a distinct purpose together. God has brought us together here in this community to accomplish specific goals that we can't do on our own. We don't come here, at least I hope we don't, we don't come here once a week to sit here and be entertained. We don't come here once a week to sit here and fulfill our, our spiritual responsibilities, right? The spiritual checklist, there, I showed up for the hour this week. God, check, check. Now you're happy, right? No. Listen to why being a part of this community matters so much. Article 28 says, All people are obliged to unite, to join and unite with it, keeping the unity of the church by submitting to its instruction and discipline, by bending their necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ, and by serving to build up one another according to the gifts God has given them as members of each other in the same body. Okay, out of there, there's three things that we are called to do as members of this community. First of all, each of us is here to learn, to learn what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It says we come together for instruction and discipline. Is that why you came here this morning? Did you come here for instruction or discipline? My guess is not all of us came desiring that. Some of us came desiring entertainment. Some of us came desiring to be served. Give me what I want here. Some of us came to be, to find ourselves satisfied. To sing only the songs we like to sing. To hear a sermon that we hope makes us feel good when we walk out of here. God designed this community to be a community that truly challenges us. I hope you come here to learn. And learning means admitting that you don't know it all. Learning means admitting that, that there's room to grow. Because the church is called to set the standard higher in all of our lives. The church is called to upset the comfort level in our lives. The church is called to tell us that there's more. There's a higher standard. There's a higher goal for you and for me to live for. If you can be a part of this church and not feel a little bit uncomfortable with your life the way it is right now. If you can be a part of this church and not feel at all like there's something missing in your life. If you can be a part of this church and not feel like there's more to life than what you're doing right now, then either I'm not doing my job or you're not letting the Holy Spirit do his job. Because it is our obligation to keep on learning more and more about Jesus, about his purpose for my life, about his plan for us. 
And we do that in community so we challenge each other. Iron sharpens iron as we keep learning together. And then as we learn, it is then our obligation to live out what we learn here together. Right? We come here in order to have our lives changed. This is not an intellectual pursuit. The Belgic Confession uses words that aren't so appealing to us today. Right? It says that we bend our necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ. Whoa, that doesn't sound so pretty. We bend our necks under the yoke of Jesus Christ. What it's saying is we come here together to learn and be discipled in order to have our lives changed in real and practical ways. Not just to gain spiritual knowledge, not just to experience a good feeling spiritual emotion, not just to ensure that when I die I go to heaven, that transaction we have with God. No, we, we come here together to be encouraged and challenged to live courageous lives of obedience to God. Lives that are shaped every single day by what we have learned together from God and from his word. We come here to hear that calling once again. The calling to live out Christ-likeness in this world around us that looks nothing like Christ. To live out Christ-likeness in your office, in the hallways at your school, in your neighborhood, in the grocery store, as you're driving, as you're, you name it. To live out our daily lives, what we learn here together. And you want to know how you're doing in that process? In that learning and living process? Our progress in that journey is evidenced in how well we are loving. Right? The catechism calls us to, the confession calls us to serve and build each other up. Our process of learning about God and who he's called us to be, of living that out in our lives, is shown when we serve each other, when we serve this world around us in Jesus' name. It's shown when we build each other up instead of tearing each other down. It is shown when we're actively using the gifts that God has given us for his kingdom purposes instead of selfishly using them for our own gain or instead of selfishly setting them aside and not using them at all because we're scared to use them. Right? It is our obligation that's the word that the Belgian Confession uses. It's our obligation to learn together and live together and love together. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word obligation, I push against that word. I don't think many of us like to be obligated to things. It comes naturally. You can see it in kids, right? Remember when kids are little? Sometimes when they're being stubborn and not doing what they're supposed to be doing, the best way to get them to do what you want them to do is to tell them to do the opposite, right? Right? Whatever you do, don't eat that last bite of food on your plate. And guess what they'll do? They'll eat that last bite of food on the plate. You know, I got to go change the laundry. Your pajamas better not be on by the time I get back. Guess what? Their pajamas will be on. I'll warn you, it works for kids. Don't do it with teenagers. They'll just take you up on it. Right? We push against obligations. And here in the church, we are so much like little children. 
We are those little kids. We push against those obligations. We're told that we need to learn. We're told that we need to change to live that out. We're told that we need to love. Well, then I'm not going to do it. I I don't want to do it. But the funny thing is, is when we live out those obligations, when we truly learn who Jesus is and who we're called to be, and when we put those lessons into daily practice in our lives, and when we learn to love each other and to love this world around us in active and practical ways, sometimes sacrificial ways, that's when we find true satisfaction in life. That's when we feel good about who we are because we're becoming who we were created to be. That's when we experience true contentment and joy. These are joyful obligations. So why are we stubborn and why do we fight against them? Why do we avoid them? Why do we resent them? When when the truth is, these directions, these obligations are God showing us the path to contentment and peace. We push against these joyful obligations partly because we recognize that being the church today is not easy. The church today, as the church has been from the beginning of time, is under attack. It truly is. Satan's desire to tear down what God sets up means he has the desire to tear this church, this community apart. He rages against us. He's the one who keeps our division strong among us. He's the one that keeps us fighting amongst ourselves instead of fighting against him. He's the one that keeps us debating, debating details instead of out there transforming the world. And sometimes, honestly, it seems like Satan's winning, doesn't it? Sometimes it seems like the church of Jesus Christ in this world is shrinking, is powerless. Sometimes all we see is the brokenness and dysfunction within the church. And we just want to throw our arms up and say, I give up. We're doomed. But God has promised Now, on that last day when Jesus comes again, he will find his bride waiting for him. And his bride will be beautiful. And his bride will be strong. And she will be presented to him as radiant. The confession declares this. It says, this holy church is preserved by God against the rage of the whole world, even though for a time it may appear very small to the human eyes as though it were snuffed out. In other words, God's protecting his bride, the one that he loves. He loves her way too much to let Satan destroy her. Yes, the battle is real. Yes, the attacks on the church are hurtful and they're damaging. And yes, our own foolishness, our own spiritual immaturity, our own communal dysfunction has crippled us. But the church will prevail. The church will prevail. 
by God's power and by God's grace. And when we begin to be discouraged, when we look around this big world around us with all kinds of powers and begin to feel like the church is small and insignificant, when we begin to feel powerless and helpless and hopeless against the power of this world and the tidal wave of culture that seems to be drowning us, we need to remember that the church is big. The church is big. This holy church is not confined, bound, or limited to a certain place or certain people. But it is spread and dispersed throughout the entire world, though still joined and united in heart and will, in one and the same spirit, and by the power of faith. Never forget. Never forget that you and I are a part of a church that is so much bigger than what you see here. So much bigger than what we know. We are a part of a community that goes beyond these walls, beyond our doctrines and beyond our styles, beyond our nation, beyond our culture. It goes even beyond our time and our era. We are a part of the big family of God. We are a part of the big church. And that community is big in power, more powerful than we understand. Right? Together as the church of Jesus Christ, we have the power of God available to us to accomplish big things. Big things if we will move forward in courage and faithfulness. Because it is through the church that God said he will release his power in this world. It is through the church that God will transform lives and communities and cultures for his cause. We like to put our hope in the government, don't we? You know what? The, the world will not be transformed through government alone. Justice won't come when finally we figure out the right laws to write down. Poverty won't be erased through trickle-down economics or any other economic system. Peace in this world won't come when we finally sign just the right treaties. Justice and peace will come through the power of God working through his church. And poverty will be conquered through the power of God working through his church. And love will triumph over hate through the power of God at work through his church. Right here is where transformation begins. Because right here is where God said he's going to release his power. Psalm 122 begins with this line. The psalmist says, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I rejoiced. When's the last time you heard that? When's the last time you felt that? Yeah. I get to go be with my fellow brothers and sisters this morning. Yeah. I hope it hasn't been too long. I rejoiced. And I hope 
the rejoicing wasn't simply to go to church because it's way too easy to equate being at church with being the church the way that God designed us to be. It is way too easy for us to judge our commitment to the church and our commitment to God by how often we show up. God isn't checking to see just if we show up. He's not checking to see if we're at church. God's checking to see if we are being church. He cares that we're learning and living and loving. He cares that that process happens inside these walls and outside these walls. Our learning, living, and loving happens when we serve each other by making a meal, writing a note, providing that ride, going out for coffee together to talk about life and God and spiritual things. That happens, that living, loving, learning. It happens when we gather together in each other's homes, maybe as life groups, and we talk about life together, and we share, and we challenge each other to live holy lives of obedience to God. It happens when we go beyond just sitting and we start serving. That's what God meant to happen when he designed the church. That's what God desired from you and me when he brought us together to be Ivanrest Church, this little corner of the church with a capital C. That's what God desires from his bride. The day is coming when Jesus, the groom, will come to be united with his bride. Right now he's standing at the end of that that aisle waiting to come. And you know what the bride does on her wedding day, in the morning of her wedding. What does she do? She spends that whole time getting beautiful, right? Okay, a few other things too. But that's when she wants to be most beautiful. We are the bride of Christ Our wedding day is coming. What are we doing to get beautiful? In Jesus' eyes, division is not beautiful. Unity is. In Jesus' eyes, being judgmental is not beautiful. Being full of grace is. In Jesus' eyes, bickering together is not beautiful. Blessing each other is. In Jesus' eyes, hatred is not beautiful, but love is. In Jesus' eyes, selfishness and self-centeredness is not beautiful. Being generous is. In Jesus' eyes, anger is not beautiful. Patience and standing for the truth is. In Jesus' eyes, pride is just plain ugly. And humility is beautiful. Our wedding day is coming. What can we do to be beautiful as the church, the bride of Jesus Christ? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, love of our lives. You know us inside and out. You know us through and through. There's nothing we can hide from you. 
And so you know our dysfunction. You know our brokenness. You know all the ugly places in our lives and in our community. And you love us still. You keep pulling us back to yourself. You keep going out and finding us after we run away from you. You never give up on us. You keep on forgiving us. Thank you for your great love for us. Help us to learn to love you, Jesus, more and more. Help us to live out that love wherever you placed us. Help us to be the community, the beautiful, strong, glorious, radiant, powerful community that you have created us to be. You know how often we have shrunk back in fear. Help us to set those days aside, Father. And may we stand up in power, in faithfulness, in love for you. And Father, may we be the voice calling out to this world. May we be the avenue by which your Holy Spirit is set free to bring transformation to this broken world. May we be the voice that gives the invitation to people who are dying to know you, literally dying for an eternity because they don't know you. Father, it scares us to think that we are your plan. We are what you have designed, and you're going to work through us. Help us to set aside our fear and to trust you to take advantage of every opportunity you give us to be your church. Whether that's a calling far away or whether that's a calling right next door, maybe to the locker next door, maybe to somebody right here in this room. May we be the church, your beautiful bride that you called us to be. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Worship team, you can come on forward if you would. We're going to close with one last song. We're going to sing for a thousand tongues. We are God's plan. We are God's bride. And he's called us with a purpose and a goal to let this world know who he is.